Let's have our scripture reading this morning from the book of Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, and it is only, two, uh, is only four verses, so let's go ahead and read this aloud together from the board. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again, we, your servants, open our ears and our hearts and our minds this morning to hear from you. Lord, we have not come to hear the wisdom of man. We haven't come to have our ears tickled. We haven't come to... Uh, do anything except to hear your truths proclaimed all in prayer, in singing, and through the word, your appointed means. And Father, as we begin to explain these verses and seek to apply them, I pray that you would move me aside and that you would speak to all of our hearts and help us to recognize where uh, perhaps there are still uh, still vestiges of self-righteousness as all of us undoubtedly have. Lord, bring us to the end of ourselves that we may worship you with all of our hearts. We come to you now with humble hearts, with ears that are attentive, with minds that are ready to hear and lives that are ready to obey. Lord, I pray as you would strengthen me. May you strengthen our church to do your will and proclaim this message that it's not through us, but through Christ in us, by the gospel of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So we are moving back into Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 5, and just as a review, Paul um, gave the his argument for justification by faith alone through his testimony, and then he moved on to a biblical doctrinal argument. We saw Paul, the changed man. We saw Paul, the theologian, and the biblical exegete. And you may remember, we've kind of summarized all three arguments of the book in this way, that uh, in verses uh, chapter 1, 11 through 2, 14, is that only the gospel can truly change a life. Only the gospel can truly change us from the inside out. And then we saw that only the gospel can pronounce us righteous. And we went through about two and a half chapters of just argument after argument after argument of justification by faith alone, justification by faith alone, and beware of, of legalism, beware of self-righteousness. And, and we did that. And so now we're on our final major division, and that is that only the gospel can produce righteousness. Only the gospel can actually produce righteous and, and make us righteous. And that is chapter five, verse two, pretty much through the end of the book, uh, chapter, five, chapter six, verse 10. And then there, then there are some concluding thoughts. 
And I will tell you that we're going to be switching gears here because this is a practical section. Uh, all of the New Testament letters, to a certain ex- some to more extent than others, but all of the New Testament letters follow a very predictable pattern that they begin by telling us who we are in Christ, and then they move to how we live to become like Christ. You have doctrine, you have application, you have theology, you have Christian living, you have justification, you have sanctification. And so all of the letters to uh, some extent or another follow this pattern and Paul in Galatians is no exception. And so he has told us who we are in Christ and how we become in Christ. And now he's going to tell us how to become like Christ. You, you cannot become like Christ until you are in Christ. But the two are inseparable. If you are in Christ, then to some extent you should be becoming like Christ. But you cannot become like Christ until you are in Christ. And so they are inseparably, inseparately linked justification comes first and then sanctification. They are, they are separate things, but they are inseparate and separately linked. I cannot say that word to save my life. They, they are, and they are unbreakable. If you are not being sanctified, then you have no reason to believe that you are justified. And so if you are be, if you are being sanctified, then you can believe that you are justified. That's where Christian assurance comes from. And so that's why Paul is going to begin this section by, even though it's the practical section, he's going to start off by talking about discernment, discernment. And a biblical Christian, a genuine Christian should be concerned about discerning what is true and what is not. Now he doesn't use the term, but the warnings that he gives are clear. And it makes sense because if we're going to become like Christ, we need to make sure that we are doing it through the proper means because we don't get Christ by grace and then grow by external legalistic means. The gospel is the gift that keeps on giving. It is the gospel that shapes us every day. It is, it is uh, the works that proceed from the gospel that glorify Christ. We don't work to get into the gospel. We don't work to stay in the gospel, but we do work out of the gospel. And that's what we're talking about. When I was a kid, and I, I've racked my brain this week because I barely remember this, but when I was about, uh, I think it was six years old, my sister, who's five years older than me, her name is Michelle, and she got a yellow lock box that had a little spinny lock on it, like the lockers that you had at school, right? And, uh, and she got it for her birthday or for Christmas or something like that. And, and me as a kid, I was just fascinated with this thing because I, because I wanted a locker at school and I was too young to get one. And so this was, this, I, I just wanted it. And I, I asked Michelle if I could play with it. And she said, sure. Well, little known to her, I actually discovered the combination. Uh, the combination was 11. I don't know why I knew that. But when you spun the dial to number 11, it would open. Well, I made up my own combination. And I don't remember, but I put like four numbers in front of it. So it would be like the combination at school. But the last number was 11. So that way it would actually open, right? And so one day I was playing with it and I went out of her room and I left my combination on her dresser. And I remember this plain as day. Michelle walks in and she says, Mom, Randy can open my box. 
And mom says, how can he do that? She uh, said, I made up my own combination. She says, yeah, but your combination has my combination in it. And even as a, even as a six-year-old kid, I was smart enough to figure this out. I was like, well, yeah, why do you think it works? <laughs> it wouldn't work if it didn't. And I'll tell you this story because I think a lot of people have a similar concept of the gospel. That as long as you get a few core truths in your teaching of the gospel, then it doesn't matter what you put around it. As long as you get those truths in there, then the gospel is going to do its work. As long, you know, you can make up whatever combination you want, as long as you get the, the right, you know, three or four truths in there, then those are what will work and everything else. Well, that, that kind of stuff just doesn't matter, right? Kind of like that combination on that lockbox. And yet we're going to see that Paul is actually going to tell us a very different story this morning, that it actually does matter. It actually does matter that we get the gospel right and that we do not we do, not, we do not wonder from this at all. This is what Paul's been speaking against, and now he's gonna show us not only does it matter to our eternal state, but it also matters to our daily lives. That even as Christians, we can get so lost in, in legalistic things and, and things that we're trying to do that, that our lives can just become chaos. And so he's gonna show us that even in Christian living, we've still got to keep the gospel straight. And so we must practice loving discernment as Christians so we can make sure that we are staying in the gospel. Now, I'm not going to say much about it, but I do want to emphasize that word loving because the word discernment has kind of fallen on hard times. And it's mostly because of these discernment blogs that are on websites all over. And they make it their personal mission, the self-appointed gatekeepers of evangelicalism. And they are hateful. And they look for everything they can to, to, to tear people down. That is not what we're talking about, okay? We are not witch hunters. We don't go out looking for something wrong in people. I guarantee you, if you took a, you wouldn't even have to take a very close look. If you looked at my life, I promise you, it wouldn't be long before you found something wrong, okay? We, we're not witch hunters. But when false doctrine comes to our door, we need to recognize it. And we need to call it what it is. How many of you guys gotten your letter from the Jehovah Witnesses this month? Nobody, really? A few of us have, I know. I got one this week. Mark told me he got one last week. So it comes to our doors. It beams through the airwaves. It comes into our car through the radio. It's on podcasts and websites and we need to recognize it. We need to be discerning as Christians. And so we're gonna just give two broad summaries this morning. Two broad aspects of discernment. And that is, number one, we need to be discerning because of the danger of false doctrine. Because of the danger of false doctrine. This is very emphatic in verse two. Look what he says. Behold, he's getting our attention. Mark my words, I think is how the NIV translates it. Or, or look, if you will. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If they receive circumcision as a means to to complete the salvation process, then they cancel out Christ. And then they cancel out his grace. 
Now, Paul's issue here is not the, the physical act of circumcision. There are cultural reasons uh, for young Jewish men to be circumcised. Just like today, there are health reasons to do so. Th- that's not the understanding here. The understanding is that the gospel that Paul preached was good up to the point, but now to complete that transaction, we're going to add circumcision to it, and that is what actually completes it. And Paul says, if you do that, then Christ is of no benefit. He is no benefit to you. And why is that? Because there's two consequences that he gives here. He says, number one, That if you receive circumcision, it obligates you to the entire law. It obligates you. Look in verse three. He says, I testify again that every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Paul says, I'm telling you this once again. Now, when did he say that? Why is he telling us again? When did he say that? We'll look back in chapter three, verse 10. He says, for as many are as of are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written by, written in the book of the law, who does not abide by all things. And he's bringing this up again to remind them that if you keep circumcision, if you receive circumcision in this way, then you will be under obligation to keep the entire law, the entire law. You know, it's interesting to note that that word under obligation is actually the same root term as what he says in verse two about Christ, that he will be of no benefit to you. It's the same, it's the same root term. In other words, you either receive the, the full benefit of salvation fully from Christ alone, or we gain it by our works. There is no mixture. There is no straddling the fence. It's one side or the other. You're on one team or the other. If you put on the jersey of Ole Miss, then you have to play, then you're playing on Ole Miss's team. And guess what? You would have lost yesterday. Hallelujah. Amen. Aren't you glad to see that happening again? Amen. Right. If you put on the jersey, you're playing for the team. If you put on circumcision, you're playing for the law. That's all there is to it. It's the jersey. It's got the the name is written on the back. You're sealed. And now you're obligated to play for that team. That's the first consequence. But the second consequence is simply this. And it's really the opposite of what, it's really the negative side of what we just said. It obligates you, but it also severs you from Christ. Look in verse four. You have been severed from Christ. You, are seek, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. This is strong language. You are, you are severed from Christ if you do this. He says here, um, the word means alienated or estranged. And he repeats it even stronger. He says that you have fallen from grace. Now, I got to say something about that verse because a lot of people today use that verse to teach that we can lose salvation. In fact, falling from grace is one of the terms that they use to to label it or describe it. I want to say two points about this though. And and this is just kind of something you can put in your pocket. Paul says that the ones who fall from grace are those who are seeking to be justified by the law. This is not a saved individual. 
This is not a saved individual. He specifically calls them out. You who are trying to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. In other words, you have fallen away from the true teaching of the word. This is not a saved individual. This is someone who's trying to be justified by the law. And secondly, and and again, this is something you can kind of put in your pocket. Ironically, everybody who says, who teaches you can fall from grace, they teach it, you do so by doing what? Sinning, right? (laughs) What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about keeping the law. So if you apply the logic of Paul here to their doctrine, we fall from grace by trying not to sin. Well, that doesn't make sense. Does it? I mean, that's, that's, you know, I'm, you know, if I, I can lose my salvation by trying to be perfect, that just doesn't make sense. And none of the teachers who teach that teach that. So, so again, it just shows that they're using this verse out of context. And so Paul is not even really talking about perseverance of the saints here. He's not talking about eternal security but he is addressing the tendency that all of us have to want to mix grace with works in order to be a better person, to have your best life now, to do whatever it is. He's addressing that mixture. Romans chapter 11, verses five and six, Paul says the same thing. He says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And look what he says in verse six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, it is 100% grace or it is 100% works. It cannot be any mixture of the two. Never the twain shall meet. It's either 100% grace or 100% works. It can't be any question of both. When I was a younger Christian, I went to plant a church with a, with a guy in Denver And we got on the topic of a denomination that teaches baptismal regeneration. You guys know what that is, right? It's it's a fancy $3 word for the denominations that teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. We were talking about this this church who claimed to be of Christ. Anyway, so... um, he was saying, you know, I, I, I'm just not ready to say that they are not saved because they teach the same gospel we do. They just add baptism on the end. So they're, they're, they're up to this point, they're right, and they get saved at this point, but then they just kind of tack on baptism, but it really doesn't matter. Kind of that combination, right? Kind of the same thing. It really doesn't matter what they put around it as long as they get that core truth there, you know? As long as that core truth is there, then how can we truly say that they are saved, that they're not saved? How can we truly say that they are not of Christ? And at that time, I was too immature in my faith to really be able to answer that. But I think if we're reading Paul's letter here appropriately, Paul's emphatically answering that question in the negative. He's saying that that is simply not the case. That's not how it works. Those who want to add a work to salvation what they want to do is they usually want to pick and choose what laws they want to serve. And they kind of ignore the rest. Paul's saying here, listen, if you receive circumcision, you don't get to pick and choose. You got to do it all. Or, or you're done. That's it. So you can't pick and choose. It's got to be 100% grace or 100% works. If salvation is by one work, 
then it is by all works. It can't be any mixture. Beloved, you can put anything in verse two and it would be true. If you receive baptism in order to complete your salvation, if you walk the aisle in order to complete your salvation, if you pray the sinner's prayer in order to complete your salvation, if you speak in tongues, if you sign a decision card, if you raise your hand, whatever it is, if you add anything to the gospel, you are canceling out the gospel. If you add anything to grace, you are canceling out grace. It is one or the other. It cannot be any mixture. The moment we add a work, we are obligated, obligated to perfection. The moment we add a work to salvation, we are obligated to perfect obedience. So let's apply this real quick to the unbeliever. If you're here this morning and you have not placed your total faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, maybe you are, maybe you are saying that I'm saved because I've been to church. I'm saved because I walked an aisle. I'm saved because I prayed a prayer. I'm saved because I was baptized. I'm saved because of this or that or this or that or this or that. Beloved, the moment you add one work to your salvation, you are obligated to all the works and you're not saved. Because none of us can keep them all. As Paul said in, verse, in chapter three, verse 10 of Galatians, you are, you are under a curse. Cursed is everyone seeking to be justified by the law because we gotta keep it all. To the believer, you've been saved by grace alone, but don't fall into a legalistic bondage again, thinking that religious ceremony, outward obedience or traditions are what make you righteous before God. We are saved by, by grace through faith. We are, we, are, we are gonna be glorified one day, but in between there is a process of sanctification that can be interrupted, that can be stunted if we, if we lose our focus on Christ and his grace and start focusing on the law to make us better. It can be interrupted. And we don't wanna see that. We want all of us to be strong in grace. We want all of us to be strong in the power of his might, not our own. We don't want human wisdom. The unbeliever tries to earn his righteousness through the flesh. The believer may try to demonstrate his righteousness by the flesh. And Paul's saying that you can't do that. It's all the gospel or none of it. It's all of Christ or none of him. You cannot get half of Christ you cannot take Christ in parts. You take them all or you take none of him. And so this brings us to the second matter of discernment just very quickly. On a more positive note, the dangers of false doctrine. But now Paul switches gears and says, hey, look, this, we need to discern the nature of true conversion. The nature of true conversion in Galatians chapter five, verses five and six. What is the nature of true conversion? He says here, for we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Notice here that the pronouns change, that he went from you and the one who, and now he's saying we, 
Listen, Paul is confident that the Galatians are in the faith. He is confident that even though they are being tempted by legalism, that God is going to use his word as a means to bring them back to where they need to be. And so he says, we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, so how do we discern whether conversion is genuine? Beloved, this is such a vital verse because there are two statements here that that summarize the nature of true conversion, the, the nature of genuine saving faith. And he summarizes it in two ways that I've worded. Number one, the root of conversion. The root of conversion. Look what he says in verse five. He says, for we through the spirit by faith. I wanna stop right there. Because in the original language, he, he, those two statements, through the spirit, by faith, he thrusts those forward in the sentence, which is what we call the emphatic position. He's emphasizing this so that it is the first thing you read, that we, that if we are converted, it is through the spirit and it is by faith. He's thrusting this forward, emphasizing it. Two very important phrases in front. So we'll see it. Number one, through the Spirit. Genuine conversion is brought about by the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the work that Jesus Christ has done and he applies it to us. He places it on us. The, the Bible actually has a term for this process. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not some second experience of grace after we're saved. It happens at the moment of salvation when we are placed in Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ. And then water baptism is a, is a symbolic of that. It is a, it is a picture of that process. And so we are placed in Christ. We are baptized in the spirit at the moment of conversion. And he washes us and he regenerates us and he makes us a new creation. Jesus said to Nicodemus that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again by the spirit. You must be born again. Conversion cannot be initiated by the flesh. It is initiated by the Spirit. Jesus says that which is born of flesh is flesh. The flesh can only produce flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Genuine conversion is being born of the Spirit. And then what's our response? That's the divine side. What's the human side? What's the human responsibility? By faith. By faith alone. Those who are righteous are righteous by faith. And the way we become righteous is by faith alone to have his righteousness placed on us. This is expressed by Paul in Ephesians chapter two. For most of us, it's just probably about a page or two over. Chapter two, he says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith. That is our response. Our righteousness comes by the Spirit. He applies it to us, and we respond by faith. And when we respond to the root of conversion, we see the fruit of conversion working itself out in the rest of the passage 
In verse five, he says, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And again, we see this summarized in two ways. Number one, hope, hope. We need a lot of hope right now, don't we? After a week like this, we need a lot of hope. And we have that hope, the fruit of our salvation is that we are waiting for our hope through the spirit by faith. We are waiting for the hope of righteousness. This is, this is very important wording because notice what he says. We are waiting for the hope of righteousness, not working for the hope of righteousness. We are waiting for it. And it actually has the idea of eagerness. We are eagerly waiting for the hope of what is ours. And taken as a whole, I listen, I want you to understand that by hope, he doesn't mean uncertainty. He doesn't mean that this is something that, you know, we think might happen or it may not. We just don't know. No, what, what, taken as a whole, the verse is talking about anticipation. It is talking about waiting it is, it is eagerness. It is expectation. The Lord will come and bring to us the, the entire fruition of our hope. He will bring it to pass. And we are anxiously anticipating that time as we talked about last week. The coming of the Lord will come. And it is speaking of the full realization of our salvation. You know, the Bible talks about salvation in three ways, that we have been saved, that is justification. We're saved from the penalty of sins. We are being saved, that's sanctification. We're being saved from the power of sin. But what he's talking about here is that we will be saved, that is glorification, when one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And that's the hope we have our salvation will be brought to completion. It will be brought to full fruition in him. That's the hope. And then second of all, in verse six, we see love. By the way, do you recognize those three? Faith, hope, and love. So we see here in verse six, we see love. Look at this, and this is amazing for an ex-Jew to say. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. So circumcised, not circumcised, doesn't matter. In Christ, it doesn't matter. That's not the proof of your being in Christ whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you do this or that, whether you sing this song or that song, whether you do these programs or those programs, whether you have fog machines or regular lights, whether you, you know, fill in the blank. That is not the proof that you are in Christ. You know what is the proof? Faith working through love. Faith working through love. It's not the flesh working through self-effort that saves us, nor does it grow our faith. It is loving acts that are produced from faith. Love that grows out of our faith and love that expresses our faith. In fact, we read Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Now look at the next verse, chapter 10, or verse 10, what does it say? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Paul says we are waiting for the hope of righteousness, but beloved, that waiting is not idleness. It's not inactive, it's not static. The result of saving faith is good works. Genuine saving faith expresses itself through love. Acts of love is born in faith. Love is the outworking of faith. Listen, it may be immature, but it will never be absent. Yes, it may be immature. Yes, there, there are many ways in which all of us need to mature in our, in, our, in our love for one another, our love for God. It may be immature, but it will never be absent. I love how the reformers said it. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves will never be alone. It will express itself in love. It will work itself out. This is biblical waiting It's not static, it's not inactive, it is alive and it is working. And the faith that saves will always produce love. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for one another. And this is how we discern true, genuine faith. What we need is not prescription, but to cultivate faith which will produce genuine love. I've given this example before, but you remember, uh, maybe you remember the time that I told you about, you know, that I've taken it upon myself to make John a better husband, right? And so I go to his house this afternoon for lunch and we have a great lunch. Then about halfway through it and I say, now John, we're halfway through lunch and you haven't said thank you or I love you yet to your wife and you need to say it right now. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna look at me with that little on his face. He's gonna look at Amanda and say, thank you, I love you. There, are you happy? (laughs) That's the law, right? Beloved, if John did not have genuine love for his precious wife in his heart, nothing I could make him do would make him a better husband. But you know what? Because he truly loves his wife, He doesn't need me there. Love needs no prescription. James chapter two, you fulfill the royal love if you do this. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the royal law. Love doesn't need a prescription. Love doesn't need a law. And love will always be produced by genuine faith. By genuine faith. Is it gonna be perfect? Of course not. Of course not. We still deal with indwelling sin. But I pray that you can look at your life this morning and you can see that you're further along in your sanctification today than you were a year ago. Or maybe five years ago or when you were first saved. The goal is not perfection. The goal is perfecting. Holiness is not a destination. It's a process And it's a process that we are more and more and more becoming more like Jesus Christ. So let's apply this real quick. How do we demonstrate love? Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for a friend. So we see, first of all, if you're an unbeliever, the ultimate act of love for you was that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And if you wanna know love, you need to know that. And when you know that love, you will be able to show love to others because you'll have the love of Jesus activated in your heart 
by the Spirit. And for the believer this morning, how can we show love? Have you sacrificed this week? Have you, have you given of yourself? Have you pursued someone else for the gospel, for, for Jesus? Have you pursued someone just, just, to, just to do good for somebody? Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's a coworker. Maybe your coworker got angry at you. you know. What can you do differently this week? How can we give of ourselves so that others will know the love of Christ? Faith will produce love. It's never alone. Faith working through love. That, that is the sanctification. That is the obedience that pleases God. Not through flesh effort, but through spirit-enabled obedience. Father, I pray that all of us in this room are growing in our obedience to you. I, I have so far to go. But Father, I'm, you're, you're, you're changing me, you're perfecting me, you're making me uh, just a little more like Jesus. Sometimes I participate, sometimes I don't. So Father, I'm so thankful that I'm not saved by my own efforts, but I'm saved by your wonderful grace. And Lord, through the power that that grace gives me, may I become more like Jesus Christ. And I pray that for every person in this room, every person who will listen to this online, every person who may read the notes later on. Lord, may we all be more like you, not through the efforts of the flesh, but through the sanctification of the spirit. Empower us. Make us more like Christ every single day. And if there's one here who doesn't know Christ, Lord, I pray that today will be the day that you would draw them to yourself. It is in your holy and wonderful and gracious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this final song together.